You are listening to the Nutrition Wise Podcast, where nutrition besties Amanda and Lindsay have completely honest and candid conversations about today's hot nutrition topics. As registered dietitian nutritionists, they bring some much-needed clarity to today's overwhelming diet culture, giving real-life advice for you busy mamas out there. This is a judgment-free zone to get in on the conversation, have a laugh, and get some tips along the way. So grab a cup of coffee, or even better, your favorite fermented fruit, and take a listen. We are so happy you are here. Welcome, everyone, to Episode 7 of the Nutrition Wise Podcast. We are so glad you're here. I'm Lindsay, and I'm here with my nutrition bestie, Amanda, in a quiet house with puppy Duncan at our feet, enjoying a glass of wine on our girls' night, where we are talking about January being Thyroid Awareness Month, which is totally a normal weeknight. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Diet and thyroid is a topic affecting more and more people that we know, and it really hits home for me personally. In episode six, Amanda did an awesome job touching on some of the common thyroid disorders. So if you missed that one, go back and take a listen as it has some good info in it that you don't want to miss out on especially as we dive in a little deeper into a specific thyroid disorder. We're going to wrap up the month with a discussion on a specific thyroid disorder called Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And we're going to try to keep this somewhat light (laughs) since we're getting into some pretty technical stuff. (laughs) Hashimoto's thyroiditis is not only a mouthful to say, it is It's an autoimmune thyroid disease where the body sees the thyroid as an invader and attacks it, kind of in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Uh, The chronic attack prevents the body from releasing adequate levels of the hormones T3 and T4, and it eventually destroys the organ completely. Currently, Hashimoto's affects about 5% of the population, although we're finding that it's often missed or underdiagnosed. It's seven times more prevalent in women than in men. So ladies, we get the short end of the stick there. The autoimmune (laughs) thyroid diseases are especially concerning because they have a strong genetic link and are associated with other autoimmune disorders like type one diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and celiac disease. Um, Hashimoto's and other autoimmune conditions develop when three factors are present. Number one, when a person has specific genes that make them susceptible to developing an autoimmune disease. Number two, specific triggers that occur which turn on the genetic expression. And number three, the person has intestinal permeability or what we also refer to as leaky gut that interrupts the immune system's ability to regulate itself. Hashimoto's thyroiditis runs in families and it typically peaks at uh, time, time points in the life like puberty, pregnancy, and perimenopause. It's said that genetics load the gun, but environmental factors pull the trigger. So even if you are predisposed to Hashimoto's, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna experience the symptoms. There are five stages of development with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And that is number one, you are genetically predisposed, so the per- but the person may not yet be experiencing any symptoms. 
and there haven't been any triggers yet. The second stage is the beginning of the autoimmune attack. So some of the tests, the thyroid test might be positive and the person is starting to experience some of those symptoms. And we're gonna talk about some of those symptoms here in just a minute. The third stage is where the thyroid gland starts to fail, which is also called subclinical hypothyroidism. And this is where TSH or that thyroid stimulating hormone is elevated and the person is experiencing symptoms. The fourth stage is overt thyroid gland failure. So this is where there is extensive damage to the thyroid gland. The labs are out of range. The person is experiencing multiple symptoms and medication such as levothyroxine is required. The fifth and final stage is where additional autoimmune diseases such as lupus or celiac disease are present along with the thyroid issue. So some of the symptoms include fatigue, forgetfulness, weight gain, dry or coarse skin and hair, a hoarse voice, intolerance to cold. Are there any other ones that I'm, that I'm missing out? on but I think those are kind of some of the yeah those the, are really really more of the main ones right yeah there. so if if you find that you're experiencing these symptoms it could be the sign of a thyroid issue either way be sure to talk with your primary care provider about it and at least get it checked out as far as laboratory tests go for thyroid issues the typical thyroid lab tests that are routinely checked are the TSH or the thyroid stimulating hormone T3 and T4. The normal reference range for TSH is, well, it's considered 0 0.5 to 5. That's kind of the normal reference range according to the American College of Endocrinologists. According to the, the functional medicine range, really somewhere between one and two is a healthy range to be in. Early on in Hashimoto's, a person can have a normal or fluctuating TSH levels. So that's, an, that's one of the reasons that it can go undiagnosed for so long, even though the person is having those symptoms, their TSH levels could be normal or fluctuating. So when we're, when we're looking specifically for a diagnosis of Hashimoto's, we're asking for some additional lab work that is a little bit more specific to Hashimoto's. So that would be an antithyroid peroxidase or a TPO antibody, a thyroglobulin or TG antibody, and reverse T3. The, the TPO and the, and the thyroglobulin antibodies are the best lab values for diagnosing Hashimoto's. However, about 10 to 15% of people with Hashimoto's may have negative antibodies, at least for, at least for a period of time. So this is also where a thyroid ultrasound is almost a better indicator as because it can detect any changes or abnormalities within the thyroid gland. And of course, if there is any, any reason to suspect thyroid cancer, that's where a biopsy would be recommended. At some point, medication is, is, is gonna be necessary. And this, the synthetic thyroid medications are helpful, but they're often dosed incorrectly by providers, taken incorrectly by patients, 
and are often underutilized by the body. The body can't always convert the T4 to T3, so this is why people to continue to suffer from the symptoms even though they're taking their medication. And this is why managing the environmental factors like diet and exposure to toxins is so vital. Often when, we, when uh, Hashimoto's has been misdiagnosed, the symptoms are treated with things like antidepressants um, and other medications because the underlying causes aren't always addressed. This is where a functional or a whole health approach has its benefits because we're looking at the whole patient and trying to find the root cause of the issue and not just trying to put a Band-Aid over the symptoms. And one of the reasons that we are so passionate about Hashimoto's thyroiditis is that our very own nutrition-wise dietitian, Lindsay, has had her own struggles and journey with finding a diagnosis and controlling her symptoms. And Lindsay is generous enough to walk us back through her experience. And, and some of you may find that your experience or current symptoms are similar to hers. Thank you. Yes, I, um, I actually was learning from what you were just saying. <laughs> some of the stuff that you're reading, I was like, yes. oh man, <laughs> I'm like, might be moving to stage five. Like I was, <laughs> oh, I <hope> not. <laughs> which is, you know, one of the reason why this is so important to be honest with you is I know for a fact that you know there are those stages and so having and having Hashimoto's it's kind of like okay so I'm going to be more aware of other things that might be out there and really kind of do my best with my health so it's important for everybody to know if you've heard one Hashimoto story you've heard one Hashimoto story and Amanda can contribute to that as well because when you're seeing clients it really is everybody is different Everyone we talk with has a different set of symptoms, different labs, they were finally diagnosed differently. The treatment plan and tips for management all vary based on the individual person. So don't feel any which way if maybe what we recommend doesn't work for you or maybe something that's been recommended in the past doesn't work mm -hmm. for you. So just kind of have an open mind. I actually learned I had Hashimoto's and thyroid cancer on the exact same day and the exact same phone call. It was an odd feeling to be honest because I actually was not devastated. It was more of an aha moment for me. Finally, I had an answer to what I had been going through for so many years. It's kind of like, oh, you're not crazy. I When you said the part about the antidepressants, someone had said that to me, well, maybe you're just depressed, which is why you're so fatigued, you know? Um, so here I was engulfed with actually planning my wedding when a patient of mine looked at me one day and said, I'm sorry, honey, but you're not supposed to have that lump on your neck that keeps moving around when you're talking to me. And my initial biopsy was normal. So as you talked about Hashimoto's and the variants of labs and everything, it is my biopsy was initially normal. But at the advice of my medical team, we decided to remove the mass. It was large enough and it was starting to kind of obstruct my swallowing internally. Um, however, you know, after they took part of the thyroid and the connecting mass out, the doctor told me the news. Um, it turned out it had within that time frame of the, which, or I guess it couldn't have got it, but from the biopsy to removal, mm -hmm. had turned into stage one cancer with Hashimoto's. Um, and then after the second surgery to remove the remaining thyroid, 
I was sent instantly into what I would describe as a physical and emotional territory that was really <laughs> unknown for a type A personality. <laughs> With no previous history okay. of anything like yeah. So the best way I can describe it if you're if you're one not has not gone through this these feelings, it's kind of like after time you're floating above your body in a foggy haze. You don't really recognize yourself anymore as you're looking down. I had to write down every single thing because my memory was starting to get altered. I was exhausted. Like I can't even open my eyelids exhausted. It took two 15 minute breaks and a 30 minute lunch to take a nap on my work literally every single day. I mean, it was kind of embarrassing at the time, but everybody I worked with knew I closed my door and I took a nap. I mean, it is what it is. So I would set my alarm and I would I would actually really pass out instantly. I mean, they would ask me, how can you sleep in 15 minutes? Instantly, I was asleep and I would wake up with the alarm and a pile of drool on my desk. <laughs> that kind of exhaustion followed by the next day that would feel like I consumed 10 cups of coffee with a racing heart and shaking hands. So when he said you have Hashimoto's, of course I gave it a Google and I was like, oh my goodness, yes, highs and lows, ups and downs. That makes all makes sense to me. Um, so all of a sudden, I was kind of feeling extremely introverted. I lost sex drive, all motivation for exercise. I had no real appetite and became really impulsive in my decision making, which like I said, I'm type A. That's not like me. I walked into a tattoo to one shop, shop one time. Like this is how I knew I was like it was a light bulb. I walked into a tattoo shop. I picked something random off a board and decided that that was a great idea. I had Pinterest boards with all kinds of things that I really wanted. I don't know why I actually did that. And afterwards, I had a major meltdown, like a major melt for many, many days. It was kind of like the old me flooded back briefly, just long enough to make me realize what happened. And then it kind of ran away again. <laughs> and then I'm back to square one. Hashi made you do it. Hashi made me do it. <laughs> Hashtag Hashi made me do it. So I remember thinking things, to be honest with you, like I told Amanda, so it's kind of hard to recall. Like I remember thinking, I wonder if Jared still wants to marry this kind of morphed different version of myself. I was still engaged at the time. Like he could still run away. You know, I was trying to like, out. and I think that's why I also became kind of introverted because I was kind of scared to speak at some point. And of course, you know, of course he still married me. Of course he loved me, you know, but, and I often found myself sitting back and thinking before I would engage in conversation, how would the old me respond to this? Like that's where that introvertedness kind of came in. I would really be observant and think before I spoke. I really just didn't trust myself because your emotions are kind of all over the place. And this instance, like really, one time I sat at church and I went through four emotions in one sermon. And it was a short sermon. <laughs> it was short, it was brief. I was feeling fine. Then I was blasted with a fight or flight, like panic for no reason which started that anxiety and the, the, you know, losing my finger sensations and the hearing going. And then that kind of subsided and all of a sudden I felt rageful and then tears started flowing. And then, you know, it just kind of, you know, I started to forget like what it was like to feel complete and driven and full of life after you go through this for so many times. Even now, 
years later, I look back at like work projects that are on my like shared drive. And, you know, I, I'm just kind of blown away. I It's obvious I had so much creativity and drive back then, but I'm happy to say that I'm finally circled back. <laughs> Me <too>. And <laughs> I'm finally circled back and I feel that way again. So as I learn about autoimmune disease, I began to see how past choices, you had talked about genetics mm-hmm. and the stages, how past choices might have impacted my genetic predisposition for thyroid disease. See, after my diagnosis, my sister was tested. I mean, she's so smart. She knew to go get tested. Mm-hmm. And she was confirmed with having Hashimoto. So I know I was genetically wired with this predisposition. Of course, I'm Monday morning quarterbacking myself, but I had a real high intake, real high intake of processed foods from a very early age. I was that busy athletic kid who did every sport available and music and other events that kind of contributed to that crazy schedule that we follow that we moms really understand. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, when is dinner? (laughs) Okay. And then top it off, I was a really picky eater. I know now that it had to do with texture and I've kind of adapted to that. Um, I don't really remember eating a whole lot of vegetables except like past those early years where you're more accepting. I mean, I remember being obsessed with lima beans like as five and six, you know. Um, I really think it started driving up my antibodies pretty hard when I hit high school. We had something kind of unique. It's called open campus and it with longer classes so it was kind of like college so we had a a longer extended lunch hour we were actually given the ability to leave for lunch and being a small town fast food was really close Mm -hmm. so after i was given the green light to ride in cars with friends i ate fast food almost daily and i worked at a pharmacy after school so that followed up with soda candy and chips for snacks for (laughs) supper you know So when I entered college, I stayed in the dorm and had more of a food freedom at that point. But when I moved into an apartment, I really began a lot of processed grains, mac and cheese, fast food, pizza, spaghetti, bagels, toast, and kind of get the point. Um, And before you're thinking like, wow, this is a dietitian. I actually didn't get into the nutrition (laughs) field until I was a junior. So no no judgment. We've all been there. Please don't judge. (laughs) Yeah. I tell my clients like, really, I can relate. I I wasn't born this way. (laughs) So I also waitressed. um, And so I waitressed at a mom and pop restaurant through college and ate there almost every shift. I'm pretty sure I would have starved without them feeding me. Um, they had an, a, a great variety of foods, but I tended for old habits and I opted for pizza, mozzarella sticks, and usually potato skins after a busy shift with maybe a margarita. They were famous for margaritas. <laughs> so of course, by the time though, I was out of college and working as a dietitian, I had kind of become full circle in my diet. I had increased my variety. Um, I was eating lots of fruits and vegetables, trying to cook different foods and, um, you know, eating very healthy overall. But in my personal opinion, looking back, I do think that it was really my diet. That consistent high frequency of processed foods over so many years, which is what kind of led to my thyroid's demise, in my opinion. That was probably that environmental trigger. Like what we talked about with, with the stages and introducing those environmental triggers. And you, you're so right because 
our diet plays a key role in optimizing that thyroid function. Mm -hmm. And both both nutrition nu nutrient deficiencies um in in ex and excess. So not only the like vitamin deficiencies, mm -hmm. but also excessive intake of those can affect that thyroid function and the symptoms. So absolutely work closely with your provider and your dietitian to optimize your nutrition and medication dosages because those doses can change as well. That's something that constantly has to be tweaked depending on thyroid levels and pregnancy. Yes. So I wanted to throw that in there. Yes. I hate to interrupt you, but I think it's really important because I've had this with a client recently kind of mentioned this to me. So, or two mentioned it to me recently, but you know, you need to work closely with endocrinology because she wanted to be the first person that knew I was pregnant. Like mm -hmm. she actually told me, call me first and then you can tell your husband. <laughs> and the reason being is the pregnancy by the time you find out you're pregnant, you're weak, maybe four, six, four to six mm -hmm. to eight-ish, if mm -hmm. it's late, that neurotube has already developed. It, it needs our thyroid function to help develop it properly. And so if you're on thyroid medication, they're trying to seal that thyroid from you. And so your dose actually, according to my endocrinologist, needs to be increased. She increased mine by 30%. Oh, wow. Right, like the day I told her I had peed on a stick and it was positive. Yeah. <laughs> so keep them in mind. So that is another way that it would change. De oh, definitely. Definitely. And, and again, like I said, it's something that, yeah, as, as our bodies go through changes, mm -hmm. as we age, our activity level, uh, there's so many factors that can change our thyroid levels and of course affect any synthetic thyroid dosages. Mm -hmm. And with, uh, going back to the diet a little bit, basically the key is to limit reactive and processed foods. So kind of taking more of a clean eating approach, which is kind of what we preach on a day-to-day -day basis <laughs> in general. So those reactive foods are going to be things like gluten, dairy, soy, sugar, caffeine, and alcohol, unfortunately. <laughs> All the things I can't function without. As we drink our As wine. Drink our Don't wine. listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's the difficult to digest proteins that are found in things like gluten, soy, and dairy that cause an autoimmune response due to molecular mimicry, which I touched on in the last episode. Intestinal permeability increases the likelihood that the body will create those antibodies towards these foods. And before we go any further, let's, let's chat about the difference between a food sensitivity and a food allergy, because I, I definitely think that that's, those are terms that kind of get tossed around um, and it's, they're, they're not the same. Um, so the difference is in the type of immune response that they produce. So a food sensitivity is mediated by the IgG and IgA branch of the immune system, and a food allergy is medi mediated by the IgE branch of the immune system. So a food sensitivity is gonna cause symptoms like IBS, headaches, skin breakouts, reactions kind of like that. And they may take up to four days to manifest. And this is what's called a type four delayed hypersensitivity. Whereas a food allergy is gonna be a much more severe and immediate reaction. And this is known as a type one sensitivity. Those 
TPO and thyroglobulin antibodies are moderated by the IgG branch of the immune system. And that's why Hashimoto's and food sensitivities tend to co-occur. And many of those are that type four hypersensitivity. Um, so removing these foods that can cause a reaction can decrease these antibodies, which will basically improve or eliminate some of those symptoms like the fatigue, brain fog, those kinds of those kinds of symptoms. So going back to gluten a little bit, gluten's it, gluten's kind of the big player here. <laughs> gluten and and gluten is a it's a group of proteins that are found in things like wheat, barley, rye, and and some of the other grains. And it's unfortunately found in a lot of our processed grains and carbohydrate foods. So if it's a packaged, if it's a packaged food, there's probably some gluten hiding in there. It causes intestinal permeability in most people to some degree, and that degree can vary from person to person. But about 18% of celiac patients have Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and anywhere from one to 15% of Hashimoto's patients also have celiac disease. So they kind, they kind of go hand in hand. And that's like what I mentioned earlier about when we get to that fifth stage of Hashimoto's where another autoimmune disease is also present, those autoimmune diseases tend to go hand in hand. They kind of come in pairs or in multiples even. So once you have one autoimmune issue going on, there's you're at a much higher risk for developing another one. But people with Hashimoto's or celiac can go into remission within a year just by eliminating gluten from their diet. So I know that a lot of times a gluten-free diet or there's, there's, there's so much hype around gluten right now. And, and a lot of it can be kind of trendy or, or a fad, but there actually is some scientific basis for, for following a gluten-free diet. And this, and this is just one of them. But some of the other common food sensitivities are things like soy, dairy, sugar, especially like those processed sugars, nightshade fruits and vegetables, caffeine and alcohol, and occasionally nuts or seeds. Not, not as often, but, but they, can, they can be some other um, sensitive foods. Now, we, don't, we certainly don't expect our clients to successfully eliminate all of these items at the same time or forever, but we, we do give them a four-week challenge to eliminate at least gluten and dairy until until just limit some of the other items to start to resolve that gut permeability and reduce symptoms. And as of yet, we have had any so far, we haven't had anyone tell us that this didn't work. So we're we're seeing a lot of success with this. I'm I'm currently working with a couple of Hashimoto's clients. And I had, I had one girl that, that came to me initially for, she was, she was trying to lose weight <laughs> and she, but there were just, she was a very picky eater and there were just some certain foods. She was like, I'm not, I'm just, I'm just not giving it up. So we, we worked for, for a couple months and, um, and, and she was somewhat successful, successful in her weight loss. And then I ran into her at the grocery store and she came up to me and she said, Amanda, she said, I was just diagnosed with Hashimoto's, she said, I am fatigued. I, she's like, I can barely get out of bed. It's all I can do to function during the day. 
I am miserable. I will do anything you tell me to do. And I'm like, yes. Perfect <laughs> oh, you're my favorite patient. <laughs> so I said, okay, come see me Monday. Let's, let's work this out. And she, she agreed to do, I said, okay, let's, Kind of reluctantly. Yes, reluctantly. But at this point, she was was desperate at this point. And so she said, yeah, she was like, I'll do anything. Great. Okay, this will be easy. Um, So we did. We did a four-week challenge, and she went gluten and dairy-free. And at the end of that four weeks, she was like, I feel like a whole new person. Mm -hmm. I have energy. I can play with my kids. And she she was like a whole new person. And, and so that, that made a big difference to her. Um, and another, and another lady I'm working with, she has been having horrible, horrible reflux symptoms oh, yeah. to the point where she could not even sleep in her own bed at night. She's having to sleep in a recliner, mm. M- mostly, mostly propped up again, feeling fatigued, not sleeping well. Um, just having a lot of those very typical symptoms. And again, we did, uh, we did a, a three to four week challenge and, she came back and said, wow. She said, I can sleep in my bed. I am sleeping through the night. I have more energy. I can exercise. It was, it was life-changing for her. So she just, just eliminating some of those symptoms that can really be almost debilitating. It makes a huge difference. I love what you say too about we, the challenge. So Seeing a dietitian, it is a mindset, and because we are nutrition professionals, it's kind of like, yes, let's think of it like a challenge. It's an experiment, which is the way I took it. Mm-hmm. Let me write down some things. Let me experiment. Let me see how it goes, because like I said before, it is individualized. There's no one plan for every person. So right. I love how meeting with a dietitian, you can really work through the challenges and kind of create an individualized experiment with each of them. Right. So Lindsay, tell us what have you noticed that has worked for you to decrease or eliminate some of these symptoms? So kind of that experiment, I finally started paying attention to what I was eating and if it made any kind of impact on my ability to function on a daily basis, kind of like keeping a little record. (laughs) Yeah, what we're doing. It wasn't until, to be honest with you, I knew gluten and dairy was was a trigger. I mean, I've, I read the, read the research, but it really wasn't until I was nursing my first child who suffered from reflux that I decided to eliminate dairy and gluten. It, we were in the hospital and he was having horrible reflux and I was nursing like a champ. My first meal was um, a fettuccine Alfredo with garlic <laughs> bread in the hospital. Yeah, yeah. Screaming bloody murder child. Yeah. So I looked at the at the pediatrician and I, I almost wasn't expecting her to go along with my thought, but I was like, do you think I should probably, oh, and she's like, yes, please try it. And it was a huge difference for both of us. Almost instantly, you know, it took, takes like 48 hours to get out of your system, mm-hmm. but almost instantly I felt amazing. I really lost the baby weight quickly. Yeah. By the way, cause I was eating very, very, you know, fruits, vegetables, whole clean foods at the time. Um, so I decided when I was pregnant the second time that I would just automatically do that again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I went a whole year without dairy and gluten when I was nursing. And then, so kind of, I backslid a little bit and then, you know, when he was two, then I got pregnant again. So it was time to kind of revisit that. Um, and so I did it again. 
However, non-nursing me is is not necessarily an eliminator. It's not my it's not my personality. It's not my way of living for me. Um, and so I really, as she talked about earlier with the allergy responses mm-hmm. and eliminating something being medically indicated, that's what we kind of go by. Is it a tolerance? Is it a food allergy, a sensitivity? So we kind of help sort that through. It's not for everybody to eliminate if it's not medically indicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have noticed that my body has a threshold that I now follow. I can handle small amounts of gluten and dairy, but not too much, not too consistently. Otherwise, my cup like runneth over <laughs> and I am left with, you know, migraines, foggy brain, um, gut issues and fatigue. And, you know, even my husband will say, like, was that the pizza last night? You know, as I'm like, can't get out of bed in the morning because I'm so foggy and tired. So I I aim for, you know, my meal plan that is generally lower in processed foods and fast foods, which naturally reduces my dairy and gluten mm-hmm. anyways. Um, the key is low. What I mean is the majority of the time I'm eating eggs and salads and protein and fruits, veggies, nuts and seeds don't bother me, but I do include gluten-free grains. Um, I, you know, I kind of leave, it leaves me the ability to enjoy like a slice of birthday cake or a work lunch potluck without having those symptoms really come to the surface because my cup is not runneth over (laughs) every day. So my person, for me, my recommendation when kind of living with thyroid is not fully to seek to avoid outside of that experimentation to mm-hmm. kind of see what is works best for you. I personally kind of follow an 80%, 80-20 rule. So 80% of what I eat and drink should be contributing to my health in a positive way. 20% is special occasion. Mm-hmm. So that really takes the pressure off of me and I feel like it sets me up for success and not feeling like I am eating any specific way for a disease. Right, yeah. right. And what I've also found too is that even for myself, and I don't have thyroid mm-hmm. issues per se, but I followed a gluten-free diet for a while just for kind mm-hmm. of personal experimentation. Yep. And now I find that if I don't eat gluten, I feel better, I have more energy. So that is almost a motivating factor in itself mm-hmm. to not eat as many processed foods, yeah. eat out as much, because I, I feel better and I have more energy and I have less difficulty controlling my weight. So there, so it yeah. kind of becomes a self-motivating factor. So it's not like you feel restricted all the time. Mm-hmm. It's more of a, I know that if I'm going to enjoy, you know, a piece of cake tomorrow for my son's birthday, that... I, I can enjoy that cake. I'm probably going to have some reflux and pay for that later. But like, eh, it might be worth it. It's not a daily thing. Yeah. You know, yeah, if you eat a healthy breakfast every morning and then someone brings bagels to work, you can eat a half a bagel without feeling guilty or that you're going to be in the bathroom instantly. Yeah. I mean, how do you pass up a Panera bagel? Never. Never. Especially when not purchased for yourself. <laughs> so yeah, as far as a general diet for Hashimoto's goes... A lower carbohydrate diet is recommended. And of course, those carbohydrates that you do eat coming from whole grains that are preferably not like non-gluten, non-gluten containing, um, or the other healthy carbohydrates being some fruits or starchy vegetables. Protein and fat amounts can vary, and that's based on individual needs, such as you know, our age is a factor, activity level. 
all those kinds of things kind of factor into our nutritional needs. Choosing low glycemic index foods, rotating foods to make sure that you're eating a good variety, and choosing foods that are nutrient dense. So basically those eating those whole foods, avoiding the processed foods, and eating at least six cups of fruits and vegetables every single day, ideally. So be sure, be sure to work with your registered dietitian, maybe one of us, to evaluate those needs and to work with you to develop a plan that fits your needs and your lifestyle because again, everyone's different. There is not a one size fits all mm -hmm. plan. And like we talked about in the last episode, vitamin deficiencies are really common with, well, really really all, mm -hmm. all of the thyroid disorders, but also with Hashimoto's. And along with gut permeability, like we talked about earlier, comes malabsorption of certain nutrients. And some of those common nutrient deficiencies are vitamin D, vitamin B12, thiamine, zinc, magnesium, and ferritin. So be sure to have these levels checked by your provider before you start taking any kind of supplement because we know that over supplementation can actually trigger or exacerbate some of these symptoms or issues. You also wanna make sure that if you do need a supplement that you're getting a quality supplement because mm -hmm. there are so many not so great yeah. ones out there. And so. I'll say reading that list, it's really no surprise to me that thyroid suffers with hair, skin, nails, and energy. Right. Vitamin D, B12, thiamine, zinc, magnesium, and memory and fatigue. Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, Migraines all, yep. from magnesium. Yes. yes. All, all goes hand in hand. Um, and I, real quick, I'm just going to touch very briefly on this because we know that this is a little bit of a longer episode, but I, this, this is also really important. So I do want to touch on it a little bit. And that is about our personal care products. And by that, I mean the products that we are putting on our bodies, like makeup, lotions, and perfumes, as well as the products that we clean with. So many of these products contain significant amounts of chemicals and heavy metals that our bodies are having to metabolize constantly and honestly, not always effectively or efficiently. Women and specifically women, we use about 12 personal care products on a daily basis. And that's equivalent to about 168 chemicals. Whereas men use about six personal care products daily, which equates to about 85 chemicals. And that could be one of the reasons that Hashimoto's is more prevalent in women. So I absolutely encourage you to take a look at the products that you are using because they affect not only your thyroid, but also other organ systems and our immune systems as well. So a couple of websites that you can check out are www.environmentaldefense.ca and www.ewg.org. I have looked up some of my daily, oh yeah, I'm like, oh, I thought that was a good product, but no, not rating so great. So that can at least give you a, a good idea on how your daily personal care products are measuring up and try to go for some, some, cleaner, some cleaner products. Um, less chemicals because you can be eating as healthy as you can but a lot of times we haven't yet looked at that mm -hmm. not everybody right we were just I think I think we're evolving now to where we're finally starting to say hey wait a minute my skin is my biggest organ 
so right <laughs> and through our i mean yeah. those chemicals when we touch a chemical it's absorbed into our bodies within about 26 seconds yeah so mm-hmm. and and with all the new chemicals that are constantly being introduced companies don't care about our health they care about a cheaper a more and a cheap and effective product with so, a different name that we yeah. don't know yet <laughs> exactly <laughs> so there's thousands of chemicals that have never ever been assessed for their impact on human health mm-hmm. so that's that's a scary thought yeah. in the, in itself so we we've only touched on some of the high points with Hashimoto's thyroiditis but we certainly hope that you have gained some new knowledge or are encouraged to talk to your provider about some symptoms that you may be experiencing. So a big thanks to Lindsay, who shared her personal story today. You're welcome. Thanks. Glad to help. Hey, <laughs> thanks, thanks, thanks for being here with me. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, we've heard several stories like hers, like we mentioned earlier, and... Like we said, Hashimoto's is often misdiagnosed and people will suffer symptoms for years before finding any relief. So if you or someone you know has Hashimoto's, we highly recommend seeking resources like a functional medicine practitioner or diving into resources by Isabella Wentz, who is called the thyroid pharmacist, who we absolutely love. Mm -hmm. She is great. She is a wealth of knowledge and um, a lot of the topics that we covered tonight are, like I said, just the tip of the iceberg. And she really dives into some serious detail about this. Yes. And so. she has Hashimoto's as well. So it's, you know, you can get her account. Like I mm-hmm. said, every story is different. It was great to hear her story as well. Yes. And especially coming from a pharmacist yeah, who prescribes medication and is saying, whoa, yes. <laughs> pump the brakes on the... Yep. Let's let's look at some other some other factors here. So we know this was a little bit longer episode, but guys, there's so much to cover in this topic. And like I said, we're so passionate about it. And um, you know, not not just because of Lindsay's story, but just um helping the people that we've helped and see the results that that they're having. It's it's so inspiring and um definitely makes us feel good about what we're doing. Yes, so thank you. So thanks for tuning in, guys. Hey friends, before you leave, make sure you hop over to our website at www.becomenutritionwise.com to grab all kinds of supporting documents. We have a self-study course on mealtime strategy, four-week cycle meal plans complete with weekly grocery lists, mealtime nutrient breakdown, portion sizes, and food lists. It's seriously a completely dietitian created package. There are seasonal recipe packs to download with zero ads, all typed up and ready for your binder. And don't forget all of our coaching options. We are learning so much with this podcast as we go, so thank you so much for your support. If you have topic ideas, please reach out to us by sending us a message on Facebook, Instagram, or by email. The address is becomenutritionwise at gmail.com.